From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. DACA will remain in effect, giving new hope to dreamers. We'll speak with two of Colorado's 14,000 DACA recipients about the U.S. Supreme Court's decision and what happens next. Then, from testing to treatment to tracing, an update on the fight against COVID-19 in Colorado. We're working really actively, seeking every possible step to protect privacy, protect people's health information, This is a really important process that helps us open society back up. And protests after George Floyd's death aren't limited to Denver. They're happening across Colorado as well. Being a black person in Grand Junction, you're just aware you're one of a few and that you may be looked at a certain way because of it. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. The Supreme Court announced this morning in a 5-4 decision it will not allow the Trump administration to end DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. The program allows unauthorized immigrants brought to the United States as children to live and work in the country. There are more than 14,000 DACA recipients in Colorado, 700,000 nationwide. Two of them join us today. They've both been celebrated by prominent politicians. Governor Jared Polis introduced Marissa Molina at his State of the State address back in January. In the face of unprecedented hostility uh, from this White House towards our immigrant and refugee communities, we can say loudly and proudly that in Colorado, we stand with dreamers and with refugees. I was proud to appoint Marissa Molina, the first dreamer in Colorado history to serve on a state border commission to the board of Metropolitan State University. And I want to take a moment to recognize Marissa, who's here with us today. Marissa. Molina is also Colorado immigration manager for the political advocacy group Forward U.S. Hi, Marissa. Good morning, Avery. We're also joined by Marco Dorado. Nancy Pelosi shared his story with the U.S. House of Representatives in 2018. Marco Dorado was born in Mexico and moved to Denver's Globeville neighborhood at the age of three. After attending Thornton High School as a student in the International Baccalaureate Program, Marco attended the University of Colorado Boulder and graduated as a student body president with a degree in finance. During his time at Colorado University, Marco received DACA, which has allowed him to begin his professional career while contributing back to his community. Currently, Marco is the program coordinator for the Latino Leadership Institute at the University of Denver. Well, just last week, Dorado graduated from the University of Washington with a master's in public administration. He's a fellow at the National Development Council. Hi, Marco. Good morning, Avery. And Violeta Chapin is a CU law professor. She leads the Criminal and Immigration Defense Criminal and Immigration Defense Clinic. Hello, Violeta. Hi, Avery. Hi to all three of you. DACA provides two years of protection from deportation, along with work authorization. President Trump ordered the program to end in 2017. Since then, it's been in the courts. Three lower courts found the Trump administration hadn't provided adequate legal explanation for why it was ending DACA. In its ruling, the majority of the U.S. Supreme Court said the decision to terminate DACA was arbitrary and capricious. Marco and Marissa, as DACA recipients, you've been in limbo for two years. What is it like hearing the ruling this morning? Marissa, why don't you go first? Yeah, you know, I think um, 
I'm still like, I get emotional thinking about the ruling this morning because for, for many, many weeks, um, folks like Marco and I and 14,000 other DACA recipients across the state of Colorado were waking up on Mondays or sometimes Thursdays to wait for someone to make a decision about the rest of our lives. And so to have this decision today is so affirming that our home is here, that Colorado has and will continue to be um, our home. And I think, you know, there's thousands of young people and dreamers who have stood up courageously to fight and to share their stories. And so it is a great moment to celebrate their courage and their resiliency because um, this was a hard fought battle. And Marco, you started graduate school after President Trump tried to terminate the program in 2017. What's your reaction to hearing that DACA will be allowed to continue? Yeah, you know, I think it's a really um, hard mix of emotions. You know, I think especially the last six months have been so hard for everyone. Um, And especially for DACA recipients to have this looming in the back of our mind and sort of over us has been extremely difficult. Um, And so I think now, especially in the position that I am, having graduated just last week with my master's, um, I'm hopeful. I'm really hopeful and I'm really thankful for all of the work of of advocates like Marissa, of our allies, and and, um, of people who continue to believe believe in us and believe in the immigrant community. So it's a mix of emotions, but... I think at the sort of in the last hour, I think the feeling that I have the most is, is a feeling of hope and a, a renewed belief, I think, in, in the idea of, of why my parents made the decision uh, to come to, to the U.S. and bring me here when I was a kid. And Violetta, this decision is unexpected. Many people believe the Supreme Court would allow DACA's termination. Talk about the significance of today's U.S. Supreme Court decision to keep DACA on the books. So I think there are three really wonderful things that come out of today's decision. Uh, First, this is a tremendous victory today uh, for young immigrants like Marissa and Marco and hundreds of thousands of others across the country um, and all their families who have fought for a long time to have their, their presence here recognized and appreciated. And I think this decision helps to do that. The second thing, I think it's it's truly a, an appropriate and wonderful thing right now to, for a, a deeply divided nation that is undergoing right unprecedented, tumultuous times uh, with so many other things happening right now. And it's wonderful to see Justice Roberts reach across the court and join what are called, you know, the liberal justices um, to to prevail in this opinion. And and the third thing I think is this is a, a tremendous victory for the rule of law. It shows that agency action will be scrutinized to ensure that it is not arbitrary and capricious, in particular when it affects hundreds of thousands of people. Um, and, and that particular, this finding today, um, holding that the DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, in rescinding DACA did act in an arbitrary and capricious way is, is particularly important for, for the legal landscape. Governor Jared Polis released this statement in response to the ruling. Here in Colorado, we know our immigrants make our state and our country a stronger and a better place to live. 
Immigrants enrich our communities. I am thrilled that the thousands of dreamers in Colorado will no longer be forced to live in fear and am glad the court made the right decision, although we still need Congress to act and create a pathway to citizenship. This is a historic moment for our country. Now is the time for the federal government to work together on bipartisan, comprehensive immigration reform. Again, that's from Colorado Governor Jared Polis. The Trump administration or another administration could still end DACA if it does so in a different way that the courts rule acceptable. Are you still concerned, Violeta? I am, um, because that is exactly what could potentially happen. Uh, The parties in, in this particular decision all agree that the Department of Homeland Security has the power and the discretion to end the DACA program if it chooses to do so. What the ruling held today was that the way in which they tried to do it was wrong, that it was arbitrary and capricious because they had failed to consider a number of things when they did it. Um, At this point, it is possible that the Department of Homeland Security, we have a new chief, Chad Wolf, who who could end the DACA program in the quote-unquote right way, um, and that would still leave the dreamers and, and on all of their families sort of thrust back into limbo. It is true that we need congressional action. We've needed congressional action on this particular issue for decades, a long time. Um, the DREAM Act has come up for, for a vote in Congress no less than 19 times, and it has failed every single time. And we need Congress to be able to work together to find a permanent solution for, for young people who are here, who deserve to remain here, who should remain here, and who contribute greatly both to their communities, to our economy, and, and to the overall fabric of America. And in light of today's ruling, Marco or Marissa, are you worried about deportation at some point in the future, or does this ruling give you some relief? Yeah, I think, you know, today we we sigh uh, a breath of relief. And like Marco said, I think we, we all remain hopeful in what can what can happen next. And, um, you know, the Trump administration really needs to stop its efforts to 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 try to ruin the lives of 700,000 young people who have had DACA. And like Violeta said, like we've been contributing in so many different ways to this country that it doesn't make sense that this continues to be an attack. Um, and so I think, you know, we remain hopeful and we remain ready to fight for congressional action and for permanent solutions that not only addresses the fact um, that, you know, the DREAM Act has been up for a vote and has not ever gone through, but the fact that there's still 11 million people in our country who are undocumented and waiting. So we know that the fight continues. We know that this is just a small step, uh, but nonetheless, a really important victory uh, for all of us. And Marco, there are people who say immigrants who should just come to the U.S. legally, then they wouldn't face problems like deportation or not having authorization to work. What would you say to the person who says ending DACA is ending a program that rewards breaking the law? Uh, I mean, I would tell that person that that is completely um, ignoring the fact that uh, at the end of the day, right, the, 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 the hundreds of thousands of beneficiaries um, of the DACA program are people who, like myself, like Marissa, like the vast majority of us DACA recipients, have lived in the United States for the majority of our lives, right? We've gone to school. We, I, I, I've lived in the U.S. since I was two, two and a half, right? And so um, I've grown up in as, American, as an American. I've gone to school. I've gone to elementary school, middle school, high school, college, graduate school in the United States, right? And so I think that just proves just how American we are, even if those naysayers try to sort of use an argument that really doesn't stand because of the fact that we've grown up as Americans. And I think to some of the points about 
the 700,000 youth that are going to be impacted by this. Not only is it youth, it's now people like myself who are getting close to their 30s, right? Who have not only grown up in America, but have created lives as Americans. Um, and really the only thing that we want to do and something that DACA has been so good in allowing us to do is really opening the floodgates of opportunity for us to, to, to seek that opportunity to, to achieve our goals and also ultimately be able to give back to the communities we call home. And Marissa, you're the immigration manager for Forward U.S. That's a bipartisan policy advocacy group. What's next for you on that front? Yeah, you know, we we are going to um, take a moment today to, to celebrate and we're going to get ready to continue to strategize and um, fight for a permanent legislative solution. Like Violeta said, we're long overdue for um, a legislative solution that really tackles this issue. And so we're going to continue to remain focused on that, um, knowing that, you know, the road for that is not easy, but it's definitely one that, that is needed. So we're going to continue to do that. We're going to continue to show up in support of DACA recipients and their families to ensure that they truly understand like what this decision means and what their next step should be as they look um, ahead. So we remain focused on that and we're going to continue to work um, with folks who are truly interested in, in you know, finding solutions to this problem. Um, and we believe that we can, we can really do that um, by engaging a lot of folks in our community. We see overwhelming the American um, public supports DACA recipients. And so this shouldn't continue to become an issue of Democrat versus a Republican Republicans, because at the end of the day, you know, Americans across our country support um, this program. And, um, you know, we have to have those really real conversations and ensure that we are bringing people to the table and that we're ready to continue to fight um, for solutions. Thank you so much to all of you for being here. Thank you for having us. us. Thank you, Avery. Marissa Molina is Colorado Immigration Manager for the political advocacy group Forward U.S. Marco Dorado is a fellow at the National Development Council. Both are DACA recipients. Violeta Chapin is a CU law professor and leads the Criminal and Immigration Defense Clinic. When we come back, where Colorado stands in its fight against COVID-19, this is Colorado Matters from CPR News. CPR is committed to covering emerging stories and delving deeply into the details of what's happening now, telling the truth of the story without hype or compromise. This vital news coverage is made possible through community support. If you're already a CPR member, thank you. Your support ensures impartial journalism, statewide coverage, and an informed public. If you're in a position to make a gift or to increase your giving, help keep CPR strong at CPR.org. It's been more than 100 days since the COVID-19 virus officially reared its head in Colorado. We're going to take the temperature, so to speak, of Colorado's battle with the virus. What's changed since March and what might be ahead? Michelle Barron is a medical doctor for infection control and prevention at University of Colorado Hospital. Ivor Douglas is an ICU pulmonologist at Denver Health. Welcome to you both. Good morning. Thank you. Dr. Douglas, tell me what you're seeing right now in the ICU in terms of COVID patients. Well, good morning. Good morning to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Barron, and your audience. The, um, the volume of very gravely ill patients with COVID-19 has settled to a low plateau, but by no means has uh, decreased to zero. Um, and I think that it's very clear that the hospitalization rate for COVID-19 is really a uh, canary in the coal mine. It's the leading metric that I think is worth paying attention to when it comes to 
uh, how well we're controlling the local pandemic, but also an indication if we're beginning to see a significant change in the uh, local epidemiology. The patients that we're caring for presently are people that have been gravely ill, many of them, for well over a month and a half. We're caring for a good number of patients who are life support dependent, critically ill in a long delayed phase. But on top of that, there is a continued trickle of gravely ill, acutely ill patients that we are still responsible for admitting and uh, caring for on a daily basis. So while I think the state seems to have done an extraordinary uh, job in responding to our governor's uh, guidance and direction with regard to the initial stay-at-home order, the safer-at-home and safer-in-the-bread-outdoors approach, um, we obviously have concern that with a greater laxity around the social distancing and face mask use and uh, some of the implications of mass gathering, that we are in for uh, a rough summer if uh, things follow the direction of the neighboring states. And Dr. Barron, where would you describe the state right now when it comes to the number of cases and hospitalizations? Um, Certainly what Dr. Douglas has described is what we're seeing as well. There's been an overall decline in the overall positivity of people. Um, Obviously, there is expanded access to testing, which is a fabulous thing in terms of being able to identify individuals. And I think that we're kind of at that critical crux in terms of determining um, where we will be in the next couple of weeks and whether we will hopefully continue to be able to see a decline if people uh, continue to wear masks, do good hand hygiene and do social distancing, or if we start to see an upsurge, which is obviously what we're all concerned about. And there are nearby states that are dealing with higher numbers of COVID-19 patients right now, Arizona and Utah, for example. What's happening there that isn't happening in Colorado? Um, so I think some of the, what's certainly going on in those areas is probably um, people gathering in close proximity to each other. There wasn't as a phased approach in terms of how things are opening. I think Colorado has taken very conservative measures and in a very appropriate fashion to do, move things very slowly. Um, when restaurants opened up, obviously there were still, and as they continue to open up, there's still a lot of restrictions. And I think that um, the other advantage, obviously, that we have is that even though it's been a little bit warm here, we have the great outdoors. And I think having that is a huge advantage for us in terms of um, being able to separate physically a lot more than we would if the temperatures were in the high hundreds and we were more confined and more likely to be indoors in small settings with lots of people. And Dr. Douglas, what do you know about treating patients with COVID-19 that you didn't know back in March? (laughs) <laughs> so much. Uh, <laughs> um, although I say that with tremendous humility, I think we're very much in the infancy of really uh, applying the science of critical care and infectious disease medicine to this problem. What I've, I think we all have learned is that the um, nature of the multi-organ failure disease that these patients develop has a tempo and severity that is all of its own, a a really unique disease physiology. The second is that um, the treatments that have been applied um, directly to address the viral infection itself uh, that we've seen some of the science emerging on have modest to little effect. Uh, We are continuing to conduct with Michelle's group and others um, a good number of uh, fairly rigorous prospective clinical trials 
um, that we hope will provide further insight as to how to treat these patients best. I think what we have learned is that the ravages of lung failure and uh, blood clotting are probably the two most fearsome and I find terrifying aspects of this illness. And for folks who are uh, winsomely running around the community uh, abandoning the uh, guidance that's been made, I think it is real important to bear in mind that uh, what Dr. Barron has just emphasized could not be more relevant. This virus does not have emotions. It doesn't care if we're bored. It doesn't care if we uh, haven't seen our family for six weeks. And it certainly doesn't care uh, if we wear a mask or not. It is, it, is a, it is a tremendously virulent infection in some people. And the problem is that we're still no wiser as to truly how to identify the, the high-risk patients. And so until such time that there is a viable vaccine and that we have sufficient real herd immunity in our community, there really is no other option but for our community to stick with the game. And Dr. Barron, this is a time that many predicted the state might see a bump in cases because of things opening up, also the Memorial Day holiday and because of recent protests that brought a lot of people together in communities. What are you seeing in the numbers? And are you surprised that they remain fairly flat after the loosening of state restrictions? Um, so with all the data that we see, obviously, you always have to keep in mind that there's a delay in terms of what's being reported. So everything that you look at today may actually be still three or four days old. So I remain obviously optimistic that we are doing okay, but I think I don't want people to become complacent and say, ah, you see, they told us it was going to happen and it didn't happen. We're good. Let's just go and have a huge poolside barbecue with 100 people. I think that's my concern is that I think we can be optimistic and hopefully all the measures that people have put in place will continue to be effective. But the fact that we haven't seen a bump yet doesn't mean that we won't see a bump. And so I think we have to continue to be just very vigilant in our practices. And Dr. Barron, I understand you're looking at Australia where it's winter to see what we might expect in the U.S. What kind of information can you glean from the numbers there at about the minute we have left? Sure. And so what I'm looking at specifically is their flu season, because that's actually the next step that we have to contend with in the fall. And so, so far, it looks like there may be a fairly um, mild flu season, but it's, again, so early that it's probably another month or two before we'll know what kind of flu season they're going to have that will then hopefully predict for us what flu season will be like and whether COVID continues to be an issue, it probably will. We can manage that as well. So we have the and with a sister in Sydney, Australia, I, I can reiterate exactly what uh, Dr. Barron has said. She, uh, she highlights that concern on a daily basis. So we may have the flu to contend with as well as COVID-19. Thank you to you both so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Michelle Barron is Medical Director for Infection Control and Prevention at the University of Colorado Hospital. Dr. Ivor Douglas is an ICU pulmonologist at Denver Health. We spoke about where Colorado is now with COVID-19 and what's ahead. Now we're going to dive a bit more into what's happening in different regions of the state, who's getting the virus, and the latest research on treatments for COVID-19 in Colorado. CPR's Andrea Dukakis and Claire Cleveland have been reporting on the virus since it arrived in Colorado. Welcome to you both. Hi, Avery. Hey, Avery. Andrea, during the pandemic, you've been reporting on what's been happening with patients who are sick with something other than COVID, people who have heart attacks, strokes, even appendicitis. What's happening now? Well, 
In mid-April, when COVID patients were showing up at hospitals and being admitted to the ICU in larger numbers, ER visits across the state were down as much as 40%. And that's because while COVID patients were showing up, everyone else who was sick was staying home to avoid getting the virus. Since then, you see numbers of patients visiting the ER slowly going up. I spoke with ER doctors like Eric Lavonis at Denver Health. He says ER visits are still below what they were before COVID-19, and that worries them a lot. People aren't coming in with strokes and heart attacks and other legitimate medical emergencies as much as they used to. I don't think it's because these things have miraculously stopped happening. I think it's because people are afraid and it's causing them harm. Is there any evidence that this issue of avoiding the ER has caused harm? Paramedics in Denver uh, have seen a huge increase in the rate of cardiac arrests over the past month or so, and doctors say that's a result of people delaying care. They're also seeing folks who've had strokes, who have delayed treatment, and there's this really short window of time right after a stroke when it's critical to go to the hospital and get treatment. Uh, Dr. Dylan Leuten is an ER doctor at Swedish Medical Center just south of Denver, and he's seen firsthand people delaying care. I took care of a patient over the weekend, a child who'd fallen off of a monkey bar and had a fractured elbow and upper arm. And the mom told me straight out, like they'd gone home for a while. They tried to wait. They were terrified to come to the hospital, you know, and then eventually realized this wasn't just a bruise and needed to see a doctor. And I think that perfectly captures people's general anxiety about accessing healthcare. And Leuton says the good news is he's seeing more patients coming in for illnesses other than COVID now than he was a couple months ago. Andrea, you've also been looking at the number of tests the state is doing as well as contact tracing. What does testing look like right now? Scientists say testing is a big first step to figuring out who has the virus and then ensuring that they don't expose a lot of other people. And testing has definitely ramped up across the state. But the governor had said earlier that Colorado would be testing as many as 8,500 people or more each day by now. And while the state has reached that number on some days, the average is well below that. And what about contact tracing? The state says it's also ramping up the number of contact tracers. It's hard to get a handle on how many have been hired since the state is doing some of the hiring. Local health departments are hiring too. Each county health department in Colorado is running its own contact tracing program. So there are concerns that some are better prepared than others. A recent report involving the CU School of Public Health found that the state is going to need an additional 1,000 to 1,600 contact tracers to get the job done. Experts say one of the reasons South Korea has been successful in containing the virus is that they've had a very robust and centralized system. So uh, that's what Colorado needs to catch up on. Another issue is Colorado, um, in some of these health departments, they're, they're, these health departments lack basic software programs, and a handful of them are entering contact tracing data with pen and paper. Wow. And there's a lot of talk about who the contact tracers are. Tell me about that. 
the state will be using people from National Service Corps like AmeriCorps. They're also using folks from the Public School of Health and they're hiring students and others. You don't have to have a health background to do this. And the way the job works is that if a person gets a positive test for COVID, uh, they're called by one of these contact tracers and told to isolate. And they're also asked for folks who they've had close contact with. Uh, contact tracers then call those people and urge them to get tested and quarantine. And the hope is that outbreaks can be stopped before they get out of control. A big challenge for these workers is trying to get people just to answer their calls. Many people are used to getting solicitation calls, so they don't trust the callers. They won't, don't want to give away any personal information. Uh, Sarah Thunberg heads up the state's testing and containment efforts, and she's really trying hard to get the word out that people need to answer these calls. We're working really actively taking every possible step to protect privacy, protect people's health information. This is a really important process that helps us all open society back up and be part of society. This is a key part of this. As part of that, Thunberg says the state is launching a public information campaign to urge folks to answer calls. Another challenge, Thunberg says, is trying to get all these contact tracers a laptop and a headset at home. She says with everyone working from home these days, these resources haven't been easy to come by. We just heard from two doctors the state seems to be doing pretty well right now, keeping the infection rate down from COVID-19. Are there any hot spots around the state that folks are concerned about? Well, yesterday, Boulder County sent a release um, that 108 residents had tested positive for COVID-19. Many of those are apparently college-age folks living near the school, though that doesn't represent all of the new cases. It said some who tested positive had reported traveling out of state or attending big gatherings, parties in Boulder. And that comes on the heels of last week's announcement in Boulder about concerns about new infections in the area. And while it's certainly an uptick, it's too early to say whether it signifies something bigger. It's notable that public health departments lately, like Boulder, have gotten more aggressive in alerting the public about outbreaks and other news about the virus. We've heard that COVID-19 affects a disproportionate number of Blacks and Latinos nationally and in Colorado. What stands out to you about the numbers in Colorado right now? There are a lot of examples in Colorado. One thing the numbers in Denver County show is that Latinos are about 30% of Denver's population, but account for more than 50% of both infections and hospitalizations. Blacks are about 8.5% of Denver's population and account for more than 15% of hospitalizations. And then when you look at deaths in Denver by race, you see that blacks, again, they're about 8.5% of the population. They account for 16% of all deaths from COVID-19. Also, in Weld and Adams counties, the number of coronavirus cases among Hispanics is over 50%, but they make up a much smaller percent of the population. Now we'll turn to Claire Cleveland, who's been following the development of COVID-19 treatments and vaccines. Hi, Claire. Hey, Avery. The key to reopening fully is a vaccine. There are two vaccines currently in phase three trials, which are large-scale efficiency tests. What does that mean, and when can we expect a vaccine? (laughs) Well, um, in this phase of clinical trials, scientists give the vaccine to thousands of people and they wait to see how many become infected. That's in comparison with volunteers who receive a placebo. 
Um, these are the trials that determine if the vaccine works on a large scale. Now, as you can imagine, waiting to see who becomes infected takes time. Plus, once the vaccine is proven to work and gets authorized by the government, hundreds of millions of doses will have to be made and distributed. Those first doses will go to those who need it most. So frontline healthcare workers and the elderly. So we're likely still months to a year out from seeing a vaccine. In the way of treatments, you reported on drugs like remdesivir. When do we know about these drug treatments? So remdesivir has so far been touted as one of the more promising drugs. Um, It's an antiviral, which means it stops the SARS-CoV-2 virus from replicating in the body, giving your immune system a chance to catch up and fight it off. Early trials have shown that remdesivir may shorten the time of illness by days and could also reduce mortality, but we need more data. Um, Just a few days ago, the FDA revoked the emergency use authorization for hydroxychloroquine. Um, That's the drug that was touted by the president. Recent studies showed the drug had no benefit for treating COVID. Um, There are a few other drugs being tested in the U.S. and abroad, But again, we just need more data to determine what works and what doesn't. What about antibody tests? We've heard that some aren't accurate, but they could also be part of the puzzle to opening up more fully, right? Yeah. um, Early on, there were many tests that were no more accurate than flipping a coin. That's changed. Uh, For example, CU Anschutz has a test that's 99.3% specific. So out of 1,000 tests, only seven will show a false positive. By testing standards, that's a really good number. But I wouldn't race to get an antibody test just yet. Here's Dr. Richard Zane. He's chair of the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. If you have antibodies, the only thing that it tells you is that you have been exposed to the virus. There will hopefully be a lot of research and guidance about what it means. uh, But the only thing it means today is that you've been exposed to the COVID-19 virus. The results don't tell you if you're immune from reinfection or if those antibodies will last, say, into the fall or into next year. So for the time being, you can get a test if you're curious, but the results should not determine your behavior. Convalescent plasma is another treatment you've been reporting on. Where does that stand? Uh, Well, very early on in the pandemic, a group of doctors, hospitals, blood banks, and university researchers in Colorado all got together to scale up the state's capacity to collect and distribute plasma from recovered patients to sick patients. UC Health has since started a clinical trial to collect data and ultimately determine if plasma helps COVID-19 patients. Researchers are also looking at when is the best time to give the plasma and what makes a good donor. It's a pretty exciting treatment. There are a lot of anecdotal reports of people making amazing recoveries, One doctor, Chris Torello at Denver Health, who I spoke to, got COVID-19 and then plasma and said he felt the results almost immediately. Within about two hours, I noticed that I wasn't warm anymore. My heart wasn't beating out of my chest. Within two hours, I had an appetite. I got up, went to the bathroom. I stopped coughing up pink frothy stuff. Well, that certainly sounds encouraging. And there's a lot more to come with this research into treatments. Claire, Andrea, thank you so much for being here today with this update. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Avery. CPR's Andrea Dukakis and Claire Cleveland reporting on testing, tracing, and treatment of the novel coronavirus. When we come back, finding common ground between protesters and city leaders on the western slope. 
This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I had a bag of cocaine and a half a bottle of vodka, and up behind me pulls a Denver police officer and turns on the lights. These days, Paul Scudo is a leader in Denver's recovery community, but not very long ago, he was hooked on drugs and running from the law. No license, no registration, no insurance, and I'm a convicted felon for the possession of narcotics. How Paul Scudo came back from broken, Find the latest episode on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Conversations about police brutality and race are happening across the country, and not just in the big cities, but also in small rural communities. In Grand Junction, a grassroots movement has spawned several peaceful protests and teach-ins. After a recent march ended at City Hall, many people stood in front of the Grand Junction City Council to describe their personal experiences with racism, including this mother of a biracial son who threatened suicide in second grade. Because a little white boy walked up to him the day after Martin Luther King Day and told him that he didn't want to be his friend anymore because all black people are slaves. If you don't think racism is real in this community, it is so real that it has infiltrated our children and they're not supposed to see color. Antonio Clark was at that meeting and is part of a new racial justice group called Right and Wrong or Raw. He joins us now with Grand Junction City Councilwoman Anna Stout, who invited Raw to participate in that meeting. Thank you to you both for being here. Thanks for having us. Antonio, you graduated college in Grand Junction and you've lived there for several years now. As a young black resident of Grand Junction, how does it feel listening to these stories of racism from your own community? Did any of it surprise you? Uh, I was going to say, you know, they're definitely horrifying, but they're not very surprising, if I'm being honest. Um, Racism is very real out here. Um, It's a problem that we hope to fix. But, yeah, not very surprised at all. I wonder if there are any personal experiences of implicit or overt racism that you wanted to share from being in Grand Junction or maybe just put it another way. What is it like to be black in Grand Junction right now? I mean, personally, I've had I've experienced it. my first year in college, I got in quite a few fights over just the blatant racism. I've been called the N word. Actually, the the first night we were we went to the BLM hosted candlelight vigil for George Floyd. On our way there, we got called N words and spooks by drivers. So I mean, I've dealt with it. You kind of learn to to not let it get to you too much when you've dealt with it enough in your life. But um. Yeah, it's definitely real out here. And and being a black person in Grand Junction, how would I describe that? You're just aware that you're one of a few and that you may be, you know, looked at a certain way because of it. But also it's it's not bad enough to where I ever wanted to leave. Like I could have went back home to Denver as soon as I graduated, I decided to stay here. So there's definitely still a lot of positives going on, even though there is the systematic racism that that exists out here. Thank you so much for sharing that. And Anna, you're the one who invited Ra to the city council meeting. You, like most of the city council, are white, and you say it's important to have the council start to have uncomfortable conversations about race. What have you been hearing from your fellow city council members and from the community about that city council meeting? The response from the community has been really positive. I think as a general rule, the community is really happy to see council finally taking this on um, and in a sense having our hand forced on this issue. Council, on the other hand, um, is not very happy with me for it. Uh, Many council members are not because 
they felt it was unfair to be made uncomfortable like that and not to have the heads up that they were going to have to sit through an uncomfortable conversation. And what have those conversations been like? You know, I didn't invite people of color to our meeting just to make council uncomfortable. I think that one of the things that really we need to acknowledge um, as as white residents or as you know privileged residents is that part of being uncomfortable means that we haven't addressed this. If we're not uncomfortable, that means that we've been dealing with this long enough to, you know, to understand it and to not be made uncomfortable by it. So this wasn't just about, you know, this wasn't some stunt to make people upset. It really was about starting that, that uncomfortable conversation. And if we're uncomfortable for, you know, a council meeting, I hope it gives us a little bit of empathy about how uncomfortable it can feel to be a resident who's being called the N-word when you're walking to City Hall um, or when you're you know, hanging out at a college party. So that's, I think, the thing that we really as residents, as white residents, need to keep in mind, that that discomfort, it means that the medicine is starting to work. Antonio, there have been images for weeks of national protests and where people have destroyed property or have gotten into confrontations with police. But Grand Junction's movement has had none of that. Can you describe why you think demonstrations have been different here? Um, We were just really calculated in how we wanted to go about demonstrating. We saw everything happening nationally around the country. And it doesn't really seem to be effective in starting that conversation, that mutual conversation on both ends that needs to happen to um, get the changes we need done. Um, You know, when you come peaceful, like people can't really fight you on that. Um, If we were burning and looting things, we would just be branded as criminals. I'll just add, Avery, that that was one of the reasons that I invited um, the residents to come and speak at the city council meeting. And in fact, first, it was just to listen City Council had um, had a very brief conversation at its previous meeting about coming up with a statement to respond to what was happening across the country and in our own community related to the protests. And for me, it was important that we have that conversation about race with people of color in the room. And that was not part of the plan. So at first it was just, um, you know, this was a conversation that the representatives of RAW and myself had about you know, some strategy behind starting conversations and making sure that it, it came through as a as a dialogue and an invitation to sit at the table together um, rather than, you know, just rather than it, a, a protest itself. We really wanted it to be the beginning of a dialogue. Yeah. Antonio, can you tell me something about the group's main hopes and main demands? As far as demands, uh, we had made four city council. Um, they ended up living up to those four demands. So, Goals moving forward, we just want to we want to unite the community in an effort to change it for the better. Um, we're not looking to just run roughshod over everybody. What we want to do is we want all factions and parties in, within the community to um, band together to fix all these problems that we have. So right now, specifically, we've been trying to attack the problems within the school system within District 51. And we made a lot of progress. We had a meeting with the superintendent and some of the senior leadership of District 51. And they're going to work with us on just reforming some of the education and curriculum within the school as it pertains to African-Americans and the history of us. And then we're also working with them to get um, many task force within each and every school within District 51 that consists of a parent, a student, and the school counselor. So they can, you know, work to address the problems within each individual school. And then we're also pushing um, voter registration and not only registration, but 
commitment to actually go out and vote. We think this election is going to be huge and we're pushing for everybody to get out there and get their voices heard. Can you tell me about specifically some of the problems that you see in District 51? Well, just going back to the city council meeting, there were several District 51 students that stepped up and spoke up about some of their experiences within it. What I took from it was there. there's some really blatant racism happening there. Um, like you said, the kid that's in the second grade thinking about suicide based on the treatment they're getting at, at their own school, that, that was pretty horrible. Um, but it, it's more than just racism as well. There's, there's homophobia going on there. Um, a kid spoke up about having to transfer schools because he came out and was um, victimized because of it. So there, there's problems within D51. But um, I think that Superintendent Serco is doing a great job. Um, she actually reached out to us to try to work with us to address some of these problems. So them being proactive, that means a lot to us. And uh, we can't wait to, to work with them to fix all these problems. And there's already starting to be some change in Grand Junction. Colorado Mesa University announced on Friday that it will remove the name of a local historical figure and former Klan member from one of its stadiums. Anna, what are some of the other concrete changes that have taken place here in the community since protests began in the last few weeks? And how much of it do you think is because of that one city council meeting? A lot has taken place in just shy of two weeks since that last city council meeting. I don't think that it was because of that city council meeting, um, you know, solely. I think that that was the first domino to fall and it fell hard and it got the attention of other institutions in town. Um, And I think that 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 really helped to set off a chain of events that has brought us to where we are now. We've made tremendous progress in just under two weeks, Um, not to say that the the battle has been won by any stretch, but we are on the path to some meaningful change. Uh, We sat down uh, with members of RAW and our police chief and had a conversation about their implicit bias training. And our police chief is committed to changing that that training and making it a more meaningful training. Uh, we've also uh, come together on three other occasions now to discuss this um, sort of as, as the request was made to us at the city council meeting that we've been talking about an integrated committee. We're now calling it a task force. We've selected what groups need to be represented or organizations or institutions, and we're currently reaching out and, and creating that membership. We have a Juneteenth proclamation and event planned for this Friday. So there is a lot that has been happening, and we're seeing responses from other institutions such as the school district and Colorado Mesa University, and many businesses have stepped up as well in the community offering their support and offering to be on the task force. So I think that what we're seeing is is really a sea change in the community and a mobilization that we have not seen in any movements in the past. And Antonio, how has it felt to see these changes take place? Does it feel like there's a real shift taking place in Grand Junction? Absolutely. I think at this point in time, I think our history is at, at a crossroads and a lot of the country's ready for change, whereas there's those that aren't. But I definitely feel like this town is um, the support that we've gotten with the movement just verifies that for me in my mind. Obviously, I think there's a lot more work to be done. Like we're not satisfied at all. But I definitely feel like it is happening. It's it's surreal and it's very gratifying to, to see and experience. That's Antonio Clark, member of the group Right and Wrong or Raw, and Anna Stout, member of the Grand Junction City Council. We spoke Tuesday. During Wednesday night's meeting, several council members apologized that community members felt that they were not being listened to. 
Raw will host a Juneteenth celebration this Friday and is planning a march in solidarity with Grand Junction's LGBTQ community later this month. Finally today, new music from Denver singer Kayla Ray. She dropped the music video for Off My Mind in the middle of the lockdown in April. Fortunately, it had already been filmed in L.A. last summer. Oh, when the freak is going? That's from the behind-the-scenes film showing Kayla Ray how she made the video with director Dylan Fout. Both videos can be found on YouTube. Without further ado, here's Off My Mind by Kayla Ray. You say you're on my side, but you fell off in time with everybody. Guess you ain't my vibe, and I can't get it right with anybody. It's still fresh for me. Hate to say it, but I think you got the best of me And you know it's still a test for me So can you give me time? Please don't hit my line Cause I'ma probably wait for it Knowing me, I'll probably wait for it yeah I just need a little time I just need you off my mind I just need you off my mind I just need you off my mind I need a little time Gotta get, get you off my mind I just need you off my mind Off My Mind, a recent release from Denver singer Kayla Ray. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Avery Lil. This has been Colorado Matters from CPR News. So grown for, guess you really wasn't built for.